Philanthropy. And that was a phrase that came trippingly to our tongues from the earliest days of The Motley Fool. I mean, yeah, philanthropy, ages old, get that, but philanthropy, well, that was something brand new. That could be something amazing. And in the early days of the internet, it certainly was. So anyway, what were you doing last Friday? It was April Fool's Day, by the way. Did you get anybody? Anybody trick you? Well, The Motley Fool has done many memorable April Fool's Day pranks over the years, from fooling Maria Bartiromo live on CNBC to another year getting lots of people trying to put in buy orders for eMerang. Yep, the e-commerce company we were helping do an initial public offering. eMerang, not the pie or the crust. Nope, just the meringue portion of it shipped out to you within 24 hours anywhere in the U.S. of A. Its CEO, Larry McCloskey, having converted his auto parts business into an e-commerce juggernaut. We hyped up that IPO silly one day, one day that happened to be April the 1st. No one lost any money on it, though, since the entire thing was made up. Well, this year we broke with the conventional wisdom of being silly on April Fool's Day. And so last Friday, instead, we launched the Motley Fool Foundation. Two years in the making, and there could be no better day for its launch. Our tagline, Financial Freedom for All. And we're serious about that. And I want to share that and some of our team with you this week. Financial Freedom for All. Imagine the possibilities with me this week, only on Rule Breaker Investing. It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder, David Gardner. And welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. A delight to have you join with us this week. This week, the start, the first full week of a new month. It's April. And I, of course, mentioned at the top, April Fool's Day, which starts every April. And a really important thing happened on April Fool's Day. It wasn't a joke this year from The Motley Fool. We launched The Motley Fool Foundation, and I'm just delighted to be able to share a little bit about that with you this week, as well as introducing you to a couple of new friends and uh, at least one rule breaker. I think all four of the voices this week will be rule breakery voices, but in particular, we're highlighting a rule breaker who will be joining us uh, near the end of this week's podcast. Well, I mentioned at the top philanthropy, which given that we have a pension at The Motley Fool for creating puns around our name for a lot of the different initiatives that we have going, philanthropy always felt like an awfully good play on words for what we wanted to do. You know, The Motley Fool was born out of a vision of two brothers, my brother Tom and me, uh, to get as many people invested as possible. And from the very first day we launched The Motley Fool as a newsletter, and then the very first day we launched on AOL, August 4th of 1994, as an online service, we were saying the purpose of The Fool is to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. So while we thought at the heart of it is the stock market, we always had a broader vision for what we wanted our company to do and to be. And in a lot of ways, we've broadened quite a bit in 29 years. And yet in a lot of other ways, we remain very focused. The Motley Fool continues to do its best to educate, to amuse, and to enrich. These days, we've turned that initial phrase into a purpose statement to, to make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Because after all, if you educate, you make someone smarter. If you amuse, you make someone happier. If you enrich, well, you make somebody richer. And we've always wanted to do all three at the same time at The Motley Fool. But what was evident to us in early days is that we had a platform not just to reach 
the random AOL user back in the day, and it was such a small service back then. These were It would be some years before AOL would briefly take over the world, including Time Warner, and then become a very mediocre stock pick from that point forward. But no, this was the early 1990s, and Tom and I started to realize, as we wrote our first book, began to tour around America, shake hands with a lot of investors, people who love the stock market like we did, we started to realize this is a platform for good that extends beyond just a good stock pick. This is an opportunity, and I've been trying to do this for seven years in this podcast, to speak not just about investing, but about business and about life. Because after all, these things are all connected. And especially if you're going to, I don't know, don the motley, call yourself right along with me, a fool with a capital F, you can see that it's never just been about investing or business. It's how we go through life. And so in the early days, we started thinking, you know, we should exemplify generosity. That's part of what we do with money in a lot of ways. That's why we invest, is to use it, in some cases, to give it all away to others. As we wrote the Motley Fool Investment Guide and spoke at a lovely Barnes & Noble in one or another of the American cities that we toured, we started to realize that this is, this is my stump speech at the time, money isn't green and it isn't gold, money really is just synonymous with opportunity. It's the opportunity to retire early. It's the opportunity to put a kid through school. It's the opportunity to take a trip around the world with your three best friends. And when you give away money, what you're really doing is you're giving away some of the opportunity that you had, and you're enabling somebody else to enjoy that opportunity. So from the earliest days, we were trying to convince the world, just as I am, I hope you today, that money isn't green and it isn't gold. It's opportunity. And so we started thinking, well, we have an opportunity around the holidays each year. This is the way that philanthropy started. We have an opportunity to join with our members, anybody who wanted to raise their hand and volunteer to go along with us, and give money together once a year during the holiday times as fools. And so I think it was probably 1995, the first full year we were in business, we opened up a competition. Because if you get me thinking about something long enough, I start to want to turn it into a game somehow. And so we decided, you know, what will we give money to? And instead of just Dave or Tom deciding what we'd give money to, we thought, why wouldn't we have members of our community write in what they think are the most worthy charities they know? But let's give them a few traits, because otherwise everybody's going to throw Tom, Dick, and Harry is going to throw in the kitchen sink in terms of the different causes that we're going to hear about. So why don't we identify some, we were calling them at the time, philanthropic principles that will help guide our members to guide us to what we think of as the best, most sustainable charities that we could give to. And so from that first year, we would get about, I don't know, maybe 40 different submissions along the lines of the traits we're looking for, just like we look for traits, a list of traits in our rule breaker stocks, we had the same list of traits for philanthropy. And you, some of you listening to me right now, have participated in that with us. You might have nominated one of your charities back in the day. And this played out in two different dynamics for the first five or six years at fool.com. The first is that our philanthropic volunteers, our team internally, our small company, The Motley Fool, people like Selena Moranchian, people who are really broad-minded and great thinkers about stocks and writers would just join in, and together we would handpick 
what we thought was the best one to five charities for that particular year. But as we grew, we made it a competition then among the five that we would pick. We would put out all five. We do PR with them. They would have an opportunity over four weeks to promote what they do through fool.com. And back in the AOL days, of course, keyword fool. And you, our viewer, our member, our listener, could simply decide whether you wanted to support number one or one, two, and three, or all five of them equally. It was your call. And so it was sort of a sweepstakes from one year to the next for each of the competing philanthropic charities. And we identified some great ones. So, for example, we found Grameen and Grameen USA, which was more of a fledgling operation back in the 1990s. But Mohammed Yunus, who'd end up winning a Nobel Peace Prize for his work, um, yeah, we favored Grameen. We raised, helped them raise a lot of money here in the U.S. The Heifer Project, you know, just give a cow to a family for whom that cow, which can do some work, provide milk, provide a financial asset to that family that can make the difference for them between financially healthy and being financially vulnerable. That's true still in a lot of places in this world today. Just one asset like that can tip the balance. Or how about Ashoka? That name's going to come back a little bit later this podcast, but the social entrepreneur platform. Find people with better ideas and fund them, not for profit, well, that's what the stock market's for. But how about all those great ideas that maybe can't be done for profit, but people with great innovations that can be launched in whatever context we're talking about? Social entrepreneurship. So those were all examples of early partners. And, and it was an opportunity, just like we've done for picking stocks, for us to come up with a list of principles. And then those principles helped us find excellence. And you partnered with us, proceeded forward with some I would say pretty excellent generosity. There was, uh, I think it was the Chronicle of Philanthropy. The year might have been 1999 or so. And they had listed at that point, since it was early days still for the internet, that people were starting to raise money over the internet. And they listed the American Red Cross as the organization that had raised the most. And it was something like two and a half million dollars. They didn't track us or follow what we'd done. But over the previous three or four years, we had raised $2.1 million through our members and our website. We probably didn't fit the mold of what their research was looking for, but we were proud of that. And it hurt a lot then in 2001 when a lot of stuff fell. The World Trade Center fell. Amazon stock, I remember, went from 95 to 7. And The Motley Fool three different times had to lay off a huge amount of our staff, and we lost a lot of what we'd built with philanthropy. Well, I'm getting near inviting some important guests on, so I'm not going to go through the full history of the Motley Fool's philanthropy, but we've done many things since then as we retrenched in the first decade of this millennium. And then in the second decade, we kept growing. And I'm happy to say, as Tom and I started thinking about what made sense next for the Motley Fool as it keeps growing and scaling, a few years ago, we thought, you know, maybe it's time to open a foundation. The way I've liked to phrase this, and this isn't the first time I've talked about the Motley Fool Foundation on our podcast, though it's by far the deepest we will have gone. But I've probably said this before if you've heard me, but I'm going to keep saying it because this is how it feels to me, that the Fool has done a great job reaching you. Thank you for listening to this podcast every week and for sharing it out with family and friends. You, dear listener, you, I predict, have savings. You have some capital. Part of the reason that you're interested in The Motley Fool or maybe Rule Breaker Investing is because you have money to invest. And as we kept doing our research, 
with this talented team I'm about to introduce you to, we started to realize that's true of about one-third of Americans today. The Financial Health Network, which is an admired organization, check them out if you haven't already, the Financial Health Network keeps stats on Americans and says one-third of us are financially healthy. And boy, if Rule Breaker Investing and Fool.com don't over-index highly within that one-third. And of course, it makes sense. But what about the others that we could welcome to our campfire? What about widening the campfire? Because there's a middle bucket, and that's the financially coping, according to the Financial Health Network. Those are people who are paycheck to paycheck. They're, they're making it sometimes, others not. Just tip them over and, and get them to the point where they would have capital savings for the first time. They're so near, but they can't really get started investing or participate in the miracle of the stock market if they don't have anything to put into it. That's about a third of us as Americans. We're really close. We just need a helping hand up. And then the last third of America, and these are what we call the financially vulnerable. And these are our fellow Americans who, however you have felt about the stock market's volatility and drops, and I'm certainly down from where I was a year ago at this point. So it, it hurts me a little bit to think about that, that my net worth drops when the stock market drops. That's the way about a third of us in America feel every single day about our finances, just to put that into perspective, the financially vulnerable. So Tom and I thought, you know, why don't we create something if at the time, this was the Motley Fool's purpose statement five or six years ago, we used to say we're here to, to help the world invest better. If that's the Motley Fool's purpose, as it was at the time, we thought, you know, our not-for-profit, our foundation could prepare the whole world to invest. And I kind of liked how that seemed to set up, right? prepare you to invest, and then now that you're prepared, we can help you invest. And while I think that's still largely true of what we're trying to do, both at the Motley Fool Foundation and at the Motley Fool Inc. today, we've learned so much more in the two years of building a foundation that could try to create financial freedom for all and just launched last Friday. And so before we proceed forward, I want to make sure part of our launch was the launch of our website, foolfoundation.org. That's right, the Motley Fool Foundation, living permanently now on the web, going forward at foolfoundation.org. Check us out. This is an appropriate time for me to welcome my first guest. Her name is Jennifer Gennaro Oxley. Jennifer is the executive director of the Motley Fool Foundation. Jennifer, a delight to have you on Rule Breaker Investing. Got it. And Jennifer, we're going to talk about why we now say financial freedom for all. We're going to welcome in a couple other voices in a little bit. But I wanted to start with you because I think your first day at the Motley Fool was Valentine's Day and it was 2020. And I, I want to ask you, first of all, before you came to the Fool, who were you and what were you doing? And then, this is an unfair second question to ask you at the same time, did you ever expect three weeks later we'd close down our offices for the next two years? <laughs> and build an entire foundation over Zoom. That was extra fun. Uh, <laughs> so prior, I, I, I would say I was a serial entrepreneur uh, within organizations. So my background is in change management, but prior to that, I came from a household of servant leaders, I'd say. So my father was a community banker. My mother was in philanthropy as a marketer. Um, and they always taught us to put others and the needs of others first. So as I got into work and life, I was very fortunate to get into change management and believe in the ability to build bridges between differing voices. 
um, and then just had a, a career so far uh, that led me to corporate and chambers of commerce and then the nonprofit sector, which I have spent the last 15 years in and I love. And I'm curious, Jennifer, because a lot of us have worked in one half of the world. Maybe we've been part of the private sector. We're part of a business. That's our career. Or we've been in an NGO our whole lives. You've been bouncing back and forth. I'm curious, do you feel like there is a real contrast between those cultures or are they surprisingly more similar than one would think? I've really only ever been in a for-profit company until now. Um, I think they're similar depending on how you look at value and the customer. So customers are defined differently in multi-sector organizations, but in the end, if you're centering the person that you're serving, things tend to work out, right? So at The Fool, we're centering our listeners, those of you that are here, we're centering our members. In nonprofits, we center the impact in the communities we serve, and we center them in how we design solutions. So I think there's a lot of similarities. I think if I'm thinking about a chamber of commerce, I'm centering how, how do we convene people, like the, the, the centering mm -hmm. piece of the convening. So there's a lot of similarities. We just talk about it differently. But in the end, when we center those people we're serving, we have the most success. I hope that launching the Motley Fool Foundation is up there on your career plot. It's at least top five. Could you give me one or two others just to give me a sense? What other pinnacles have you hit over the course of your career? What, what, what shines out to you? I think the first was at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. And I think... Um, that was an old membership model. I mean, many of us are members of our chambers, right? And, um, and I still remember having to change from a like door-to-door -door membership model that we had to something that was more online with a whole generation. Um, and uh, one of the pinnacles was actually launching the mid-market division for them. And I think mm -hmm. There was a missing middle piece there. You know, we had always focused on small business and large business, but so many laws and policies were not focused on the missing middle. Um, and so that was one of the pinnacles for me to start was to be able to launch that and then really bring their voice forward. Um, and then the second, I think, was more recent um, at the Fulbright Association. And many of you, many of our listeners may know what the Fulbright Scholarship is. Um, it is a, a scholarship that's been around in the U.S. for over 50 years. Um, and I have to admit, I've, I've heard of it, and I knew this was part of your background. I'm sure I asked you an interview question about it. But because about a quarter of our listeners are international, could you just briefly remind us what the Fulbright is awarded for? It's like Peace Corps, but at the level of being within policymakers. So Peace Corps mm. is more on the ground. A Fulbright scholarship is for a person to go to another country create an opportunity for mutual understanding in that space of policy development. Um, we have relationships with many, many countries, um, but the focus for Fulbright had fallen off over the years, lots of other things happening politically. Um, so one of the other successes was creating the government affairs opportunity, the government affairs advocacy day, and all the visibility we needed to bring bipartisan support back to the program and reestablish the program for the long term. So that was, again, mutual understanding. Well said. So again, thank you. I did read your resume at the time. I just haven't talked about it as much with you in recent years because we've been talking about the Motley Fool Foundation. That's where I want to turn next, Jennifer, because we still feel like a scrappy startup today in our first week of operations. And yet I know it was a lot scrappier when it was just you or maybe just you, me and a few other fellow fools. But I would love for you to reflect a little bit. There's never going to be time. But it's been about two years now. What was the process you went through 
over the past couple of years. Let's say I myself am thinking about a foundation. What kind of coaching would you give me? What have you done to launch this foundation? Well, let's go back to the initial original thought we talked about, which was centering the people we serve. So that was the basis for everything. So we asked just four questions. You know, sometimes simplifying makes it easier, but we took a step back from do we want to launch yet another shiny ball in a financial literacy space? Or do we want to think strategically about what's happening from a macro perspective in people's lives? And then how do we best deploy our assets? And assets meaning the fool, all of our wonderful members, our whole network. How do we actually deploy that for change? Mm. So we asked four questions. What does the fool member want to do? Who are we? Why are two thirds of people still considered not financially healthy. This is a very stubborn number in this country, right? So why, why, what are the real core reasons? What are the truths in our society? What is really happening? Um, and then once we knew that around mindset and systems, for the people that are in that two thirds, how much is in their control? And that was a big question for me, really. And how much was being, was part of the system? The third question is, what's the need? So what are the gaps? We looked at what are the gaps? What are the opportunities? Things are moving. There's a lot of positive progress. So we wanted to identify those things. And then who do we focus on? You know, so much of our work, and George, I, my wonderful program director will be on later. We talk a lot about saying no to as many things as we say yes to. Right? <laughs> He's going to be excited to talk about that in a minute. Um, but who do we focus on was a big piece of our research. So yeah, those were the four questions. What do we want to do? Why are people still stuck? What's actually moving? And who do we focus on? And I think it was natural for me to be imagining initially anyway that maybe we would be addressing financial literacy head on. And I think a lot of members want us to do that. And yeah. a lot of you listening to me right now are probably already doing that. How many mailbag items have I had of you teaching your kids or teaching a local classroom, not even just as a professional, just as a volunteer parent? getting kids thinking about the stock market. And I always get excited talking about the stock market to kids or adults. And that that kind of evangelical zeal will always be true of us here at The Fool. But Jennifer, the more that we looked at the problem, clearly The Motley Fool was not going to really make the changes and lift the world up in, a, in the way I hope we will if we were just focused on trying to teach kids the stock market. Agreed. And I think that um, a lot of that came out of just my general instinct that we need to step back first and really listen before we stepped in. But the other piece was, look, we are at the heart an education company. So do we think we'll be really involved in education? Yes, we will. And I think we'll hear a little bit more about some of our first investments and you'll see that thread, the education thread pulled through. Mm -hmm. And I think based on who you all are, our listeners, who our members are, who our employees are, I think we have an opportunity to do a lot more. And, and I think I just always, you and I always talked about that, right? There's an opportunity for us to do more than just that. Though that is an important piece. Financial literacy is an important piece. But depending on who you're talking to, even the word financial seems out of reach. So literacy, I mean, you have to think of even how we talk about this. It's true. In fact, my brother, the WAG, once said, whoever was trying to kill financial literacy called it financial literacy. It's not the most engaging or exciting term. And I, I certainly hope I'm not offending anybody with that because it is in many ways a beautiful uh, phrase, but it's also a little bit, I don't know, technical sounding or sometimes threadbare, maybe even overused because a lot of people use that phrase. But the more we looked at things, Jennifer, I think you helped us 
hundreds of hours of research and partnership conversations have helped you realize that there are, and I'd love for you to enumerate them briefly, then let's welcome on our program director as well, George Koloff. But Jennifer, enumerating five drivers that really need to be present for somebody to be financially free. If we're going to create, try to create financial freedom for all, it isn't just everybody has the right amount of money. There are five drivers. Uh, Jennifer Oxley, you're the one who's helped me realize this. So could you talk a little bit about each of these five? So five drivers of financial freedom. And let's just, when we think about financial freedom, there's a lot of stages before that. Financial stability, opportunity, freedom. So when we think about the two thirds of Americans that are still financially unstable, we're trying to at least get to a point of stability and savings, and then we move into other places. But let's talk about the systemic pieces are the drivers, housing, health, education, work, and money. And there they are. There they are. The five drivers of financial freedom. Same again. Yes. Housing, health, education, work, and money. There are other pieces. We're going to focus here. When we think about food insecurity, that could fall into health. Entrepreneurialism falls into work. So just know that there are some other things you may all be thinking about. Mm-hmm. They fall mm-hmm. into those five large buckets. What we found, I think, in all the research with our forming task force, again, partnering and lifting from within. So we brought on this forming task force. We didn't touch on this bit. We'll say it quickly. And our forming task force had 13 members and they were employees, members like yourself, listeners, and then people who actually are in the communities we're going to serve and people who hold access to potential financial freedom. So thinking the banking industry, credit industry, et cetera. They were part of our forming task force to help us really look at all of this, come up with the five drivers, and then try to figure out what does the fool do about this? Well, what we found is that the five drivers, you think about Habitat for Humanity, there are a lot of wonderful individual interventions in each one of these drivers. Yeah, they each are- of these five is a deep Yes. Deep. Deep system. Um, area system with lots of hardware and sometimes billions of dollars staked on trying to fix them, which we deeply respect. And as wonder, as our wonderful guests, Jose and George, will talk about a little bit later, the, the reality of these systems is that though there are progress in each one of those five drivers, they aren't connected. And, and so many people continue to fall through the cracks. When we think about financial freedom, the system is one part, right? Back to the system. The second is our social capital. Who are mentors? So many of us. I had the most wonderful mentors, speaking of my father to start, wonderful mentors in my life, but that really helped ladder me into the next position. And then the third piece is your own agency, right? What we teach you all here is, is do you have the confidence, the literacy, do you know how to do it? So when you think about, are those five systems working smartly together? Do we have enough social capital around us to boost us up? And then do we actually know we can do it? Do we have confidence and do we have enough education to take chances? So I think all those pieces are really important when we think about financial freedom. And unfortunately, for two thirds of Americans, different parts of those uh, segments are just not working well. Yeah. And we've made a real choice, and this is going to become evident now as we welcome on our program director of the Motley Fool Foundation, George Kalaf. George, a delight to have you. Thank you, David. George and Jennifer, we've, we've made a choice because you do have to focus and you do have to say no to things. I'm not very good at that myself, but with my pals, Jennifer and George, I'm much better. And George, one of the decisions we've made is to pick one of those two 
non-financially healthy thirds and really focus our attention there? And is it on the financially vulnerable or the financially coping? We'll be focusing on the financially coping. Um, There's the sort of sense that the financially vulnerable, while certainly needing support and assistance and everything, um, are a little far out of reach for us from where we're starting. Um, That's not to say that we can't reach the financially vulnerable by working through the financially coping. Mm -hmm. Thank you, George. And that, that always has felt like the right decision uh, for us. And that decision was made, I don't know, Jennifer, maybe eight to 12 months ago, kind of, I, I think you started to really center us there. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I am. I think the other way to look at it is that financially coping seminar are, are a little bit around the missing middle. It's a term that's often used in the housing space, but the missing middle for us, and, and we think about it two ways. One is helping those that are closer to the vulnerable side, really, really move into the middle And the other side is those are closest, really close to being financially stable. They're often influencers within their own communities. And is there an opportunity for us to work with those influencers to have a ripple effect on others within the coping and then vulnerable communities? So I think it it seemed to us the best way for us to leverage all of our assets was to start in a place where we could have the most ripple effect and also a special attention, just so you know, within coping, Just to explain a little bit more, we will have a special attention to those that are most vulnerable or most marginalized. So our Black and Latinx communities, women, those that have an income of 50,000 or so. I mean, those are the areas in general, we think about the 54% of Americans, about 150 million Americans that are still just coping. Mm. And, you know, I, I think in particular, George and Jennifer, why that's the right choice for us, and I hope a lot of listeners are nodding their head along with me as I say this, is that those five drivers, which have been a really important insight for us and uh, really allowed us to see the world with new eyes. So a roof over your head. You really can't be financially free if you don't have housing. Your health. It's going to be hard to be financially free if you don't have good health. Education. A job, as you mentioned, Jennifer. And then the fifth one, money, uh, which is going to be important for financial freedom as well. But you know, I think there's a sixth one that relative to the others is sort of abstract, and yet I think it's where the Motley Fool might might have our greatest strength. And I would describe that as, as mindset, as the ability to help people think in new ways in some cases, or just at least flat out better ways about their money, how to save it, how to invest it, and how to give it away. And so it's that mindset piece. And, and that's, George, I think in particular why I think the financially coping, it makes so much sense because if we can just retrain some minds and just get them to make one better decision, that really can tip them over into financially healthy. So it feels like fertile ground for the the Motley Fool Foundation, that mindset element. George, what do you think? Yeah, Dave, I mean, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because, um, you know, earlier we talked about systems, right? And we talked about how um, we've identified five drivers housing, health, money, education, and work. And each of those drivers represents a complicated and often broken system. And together, the pieces of the system aren't talking to each other. Now, if we're, if we're serious about systems change, one of the prerequisites to systems change or an important ingredient to changing a system is changing people's mindsets. So it's really hard to disentangle systems from mindsets because we are all part of the system. 
And the mindset we bring into the system that we play shapes the system we're playing in. So um, it's really hard to disentangle them, but I think mindset is critical. Um, my wife will probably make fun of me because she says I bring everything back to tennis. But a tennis analogy <laughs> here would be, you know, you could train somebody technically to have the perfect forehand, the perfect backhand, the perfect serve, the perfect volley. But if they don't have the mindset in believing in those abilities when they need to most under pressure in a match, you know, then all the technical training is sort of wasted on that moment. So I, I think mindset is critical to changing the systems that we're trying to shape. And I, I'm so excited to think that that is the case and that we are purposing that. And I hope, dear listener, as you hear us right now, that you're excited about that too, because minds can really, in many cases, be changed dramatically and more cheaply than a lot of other hardware out there in this world. And a lot of the systems that, yeah, represent hurdles to a lot of fellow Americans that that are in the process, I hope, of being fixed, or in some cases restored. But a human mind, just having a better thought, having that light bulb go off over your head, speaking to a classroom full of kids about the stock market, or really what I've tried to do every single week through Rule Breaker Investing, week in, week out, kind of coaching those listening, help you think better, make a single better decision about your money this week. I just think The Motley Fool is so well positioned to do that. Now, George, before we proceed forward, could you just give a 60-second skinny of where you came to The Motley Fool Foundation from? Sure. I mean, uh, not too dissimilar from Jennifer. I've spent half my career in the private sector and the other half in the social entrepreneurship startup nonprofit space. Um, I think in the private sector, I, I got a little... Um, uninspired helping Fortune 500 companies just add more zeros to their bottom line. Mm. I was a management consultant um, pumping out PowerPoint decks. Now, I don't want to gainsay that too much, George, because a lot of us are invested in some of those companies. So yeah, adding no. a zero, I don't think anybody <laughs> hearing me right now is going to say that's not noble work, my friend. Um, and, then, and then the second half of my career has been more in the social entrepreneurship um, startup space. I had um, the wonderful opportunity to serve as a founding executive director for Empatico, which was an ed tech startup um, that received seed funding from Daniel Lebetsky, the founder of Kind, Kind Bars, Kind Snacks. I'm sure you guys eat them. Ah, yeah, sure. Yeah. So Daniel and I shared a passion for building bridges across lines of difference. And um, he was at a point in his own sort of uh, uh, career where he was thinking more strategically about his philanthropy mm. and uh, put some money into the vision was how do we connect kids around the world to help them discover a shared humanity and really expand the boundaries of where and how kids learn. Wonderful, George. And I saw a little bit of your work, of course, in conjunction with us looking over your resume and thinking about prospect of hiring you. And I'm so glad that we did. And and it looked kind of like you were doing before Zoom what Zoom ended up needing to do for the whole world, which was give us distance connections with technology. Is that yes, was that? that that's true. And unfortunately, you know, that we got hit really hard during the pandemic. We built Ugh. something for classrooms and classrooms closed. And then when they did reopen, there was understandably such Zoom fatigue that the last thing teachers wanted to do 
is get on another Zoom like hangout Ugh. in the precious time that they had with their kids live, even if it meant connecting with other kids in Lebanon and Jordan and and Egypt and wow. France. Um, yeah. So so um, it was the type of product that that was really adversely impacted by, well, by the pandemic. If there was bad timing, it certainly wasn't your fault, and it was our good luck. So George, thank you. At The Motley Fool, we're often asked what our motley is, what our special sort of sauce is, what, what's our unique power. Yeah, what's the value you bring to work every day? Exactly. And, and I like to think of myself as a bridge builder, um, connecting dots across communities, across people who don't normally come together, and helping people discover a shared humanity at a time when we desperately need it. Thanks for sharing your motley. And mine's Excelsior, by the way. I probably said that before in this podcast, but we won't talk about that now. Jennifer, what's your motley? It has always been fear less, hope more. Oh my gosh. Let me pause for a sec there. Talk about change management, Jennifer. Your voice <laughs> has changed on this podcast. It looks like your microphone may have kicked in. Anyway, that's still you. That's still Jennifer Gennaro Oxley, our executive director, but she sounds entirely different for the latter portion of this podcast. It actually sounds better, Jennifer. This technology thing here is, has no indication of my age. I'm just going to say that for the record. <laughs> <laughs> so Jennifer is sticking with it. Before you launch a foundation, you better know what you're trying to do, what you're not trying to do, and, Jennifer, how to measure it. I think a lot of members, uh, the first question they ask, and we've already started fielding these because we've been, we're now out there in the field, day five for us. Uh, they say, how do you guys measure your impact? It's a great question. I will say that there are three buckets in which we will measure impact. There will be a SMART goal, which some of you may know, or some of our listeners, um, attached to each one of those. But the three buckets that we are focusing on are mindset, which we've talked a lot about in this podcast, the system, how well it's working together, how many opportunities are afforded because the system is working better together, and money. Money is our euphemism for meeting people where they are, whether it's building savings, access to credit, access to capital, all the above. So again, it's systems, mindset, and money. That said, how do we actually do the work? And I'd hmm. love for our friend George to tell us about our strategies. Thanks, Jen. I mean, I, I, um, I wanted to start quickly by saying, you know, when I came on board, uh, David, when I think about what you and Tom did so well at The Motley Fool, I think about how you demystified investing. You essentially help people in really plain English tune out all the hype and focus on meaningful factors to beat the street. And by, by doing so, you helped make the world smarter, happier, and richer. Thank you, George. That's so succinct. I, yeah, I've never put it that way myself, and, and in part because I can't speak so tersely. That was beautiful. Thank you. But, Keep going. So, so, I mean, when I think about that, I think there's a similar opportunity for us at the foundation to demystify the journey to financial freedom. Mm. People don't even know where they are on the journey, how to make sense of it, what the rules are, where to start, where to end. You know, so there's like this game board that, you know, has pieces on it. And, and there's a real opportunity for us at the foundation to continue the legacy that you and Tom started on the corporate side of demystification. You demystified investing and perhaps 
we can humbly start to take steps towards demystifying the journey to financial freedom. Beautiful. So we have three strategies and what I like to call the golden fool fuel. And I don't recommend trying to say that three times. <laughs> but the first strategy is investing in rule breakers. That right? sounds familiar. Yeah. So people like Jose, who you're going to hear from, social entrepreneurs are natural rule breakers. They look at a system, they see broken pieces, they see missing pieces, and they try to fit in innovative, creative solutions. Mm. Secondly, we talked about these five drivers, right? The drivers aren't connecting, the system's complicated and not connecting. And you can think of our role there as that of a conductor of an orchestra helping the five sections, or in this case, the five drivers, play together in harmony. Mm. Third, look, we're creating this work together. We're on a learning journey with, with members and partners and people that are, that are living their financial journeys. Um, and, and I think we want to reserve what we're calling an innovation fund to launch new initiatives that we don't know about yet um, that will help pave the way to equitable path and access to financial freedom for all. Some of those are going to fail and some, some will scale. Really well put, George. And now I'm really happy for you to introduce one more voice for this week's podcast because we are about to meet a lot of us for the first time, not us, but so many of our listeners for the first time, the head of the Mission Asset Fund, Jose Quinones. And uh, George, I'll let you mention how we found Jose uh, and to recognize a fellow rule breaker. Yeah. Um, well, we, we, one of our first partnerships is with Ashoka, who you heard about earlier on this program. And Ashoka is probably the world leader in identifying and supporting social entrepreneurs around the world. Uh, they have over 4,000 social entrepreneurs uh, who they provide financial awards, technical support, networking, access to a community, all to help them scale. And Jose is, is one shining example of that network. Um, and we're happy to welcome Jose into a cohort we're building of rule breakers and or financial freedom fellows. And Jose, we've talked about this theme of bridge building. I can hardly think of a better bridge builder than Jose. Jose is essentially building bridges between unbanked and underbanked communities and mainstream financial institution, giving people access to credit who otherwise wouldn't have access to credit. And I'd love to hand it over to Jose to talk a little bit more about the Mission Asset Fund and, and what led him to this passion and this work. Well, thank you so much for that introduction, George. And thank you for having me in this conversation, David. I'm, I, I, I'm thrilled. I'm excited. This is, I love the energy in, 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 in this podcast. So, so thank you for, for lending uh, me some time you know, to kind of tell our story. Uh, you know, at the Mission Asset Fund, we are bridge builders. I mean, that's exactly, precisely what we've done since day one. Uh, because, well, you know, uh, but but before building that bridge, however, we had to change our mind. We had to change the way we were looking at the people we were serving. Uh, because traditionally, society in general, you know, would think about immigrants, low-income people, poor people, in a very, what I call now, in a deficit-based perspective, you know, as people that 
you know, that they were doing everything wrong, people that were just, you know, lazy or, or they were just, you know, spending too much money on buying lattes. I mean, like there was literally a report. You might remember this. There was a report that said, oh, if only poor people just stop buying lattes, maybe they'll be saving enough money to go to college. Mm. It was like they literally said that in a report. And so but I I thought that was actually the wrong way of talking about, you know, uh, the, the struggles that poor people face. Uh, you know, because that was not the reality. It's not the reality that I understood it. You know, as a person who you know, grew up in the shadows, a person who grew up in the margins of society, it's like, that is not who I saw, right? Because I saw people with dignity, people that were working hard, people that were managing their money in, in more sophisticated ways than we ever gave them credit for. And so, so first we had to sort of change our perspective of who it was that we were, you know, uh, working for. And then, and then from that, we said, you know, we, we need to institute this design principles of meeting people where they are and really building on the realities of their, you know, of that community in mind, not trying to impose a solution that was designed for somebody else or another community and imposing that solution on them. Mm. And so, so that was fundamental. It was like we had to change the way we were thinking about that. And, and the way I phrase that is that we went from a deficit-based perspective to a strength-based perspective. And then through that perspective, it sort of forced us to sort of think about, well, what is good in the people's lives? You know, what is working in this community? What what are the assets that they bring to the table that we can build from? And assets don't necessarily have to be all about financial assets. They don't have to be houses or cars or businesses. Sometimes an asset is a dream. Because imagine not having a dream. And having a dream is an asset, right? Mm. So you can build on that. You can design, you know, engagement. You can build somebody's life based on that dream. So, so we we force ourselves to think about our community in a completely different way. And then from that, that's what we learned. Like you know, people were going through this innovative, you know, time honored uh, uh, tradition of people lending and borrowing money with themselves, but in very informal ways. And we took that practice. We found a way to formalize it. And from that formalizing this activity, we were able to connect that activity to the credit bureaus. And that was, a, that was the bridge that we were able to build, you know, without changing our clients, without saying, oh, stop what you're doing. This is how you do it in America. No, we said, keep doing what you're doing, but do it through us so that way we can help you build and improve your credit score by the traditions that they were already doing, you know, with themselves already. So that was a point of our, bri- our bridge, and and from that, you know, math has grown significantly throughout the country, but 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 we hold to that uh, idea first and foremost because that was really the point of our innovation. You know, when we first started lending circles back in San Francisco almost fifteen years ago. I was wondering. So it was fifteen years ago, Jose. Yes, right about. Yeah, that's right. And you said math because that's the way you shorthand your own organization, the Mission Asset Fund, and it's a beautiful name, by the way, and. I assume you chose the name. Well, it, it was something that, you know, we did as a collective, as a community. You know, we were born in the Mission District in San Francisco. And for any of you, your listeners who have been, you know, in, in San Francisco, I'm sure you've been to this place to have some, you know, great tacos, great burritos. And if you haven't, please do so because <laughs> a lot of taquerias that, that you'll definitely enjoy. So we are born in that community, the Mission District, and we kind of kept that name to honor, you know, the immigrants that live in that community, but also to signify our broader mission as a nonprofit to really help, you know, uh, immigrants, you know, throughout the country build and improve their financial lives. 
So Jennifer, investing in rule breakers is one of the primary things that we're going to be doing together with our members who are going to be investing with us in people like Jose. What was it about Mission Asset Fund and Jose that says rule breaker to you? The question is really, what was it about Jose that didn't act like a rule breaker? In other words, mm. every, everything about you, Jose, really fits not only who we are, but we've learned so much from you. So to be clear, at the beginning of this whole process, 22 months ago, Jose was one of our first calls as an influencer and that whole philosophy of lifting and building from within. And Jose, you've helped us so much be authentic to the truths of our society and grow and heal and learn. Uh, And then we all just went through the process and thought, is there a way one day for us to work with you? So you've inspired us. And, And so are you a rule breaker? Yes. And I think we are as well. So there is this wonderful marriage. But really, it was just this really candid conversation from the beginning about why people are still in this position and how much of it is under their control and how much is related to the system that's designed to offer opportunity or limit their ability to move forward. And honestly, Jose, I'm indebted to you. Well, thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. I love the term rule breaker. I'm going to tell my wife about it so that, that way I can, I can get away with a little bit more <laughs> rule breaking around the house. So, so thank you for that. Jose, when I hear about your work, it just seems like you're not, you're, you're, you're breaking rules in the true spirit of rule breaking. And when people break rules, there's that balance between breaking rules in a more inclusive bridge building way and breaking rules in a more disruptive way. I'm wondering in your own work, how you've struck that balance and how you think about that trade-off. Yeah, you know, it's, it's a wonderful question. And I think the way I, I phrase it is, um, you know, both need to happen, right? Because, the, you know, the system is not set up, you know, for the success of the people that we serve. That's real. But the people that we serve have to eat tomorrow. They have to pay rent at the end of the month. They have to pay their bills now, right? So we have to find a way to uh, bend the rules, break the rules so that they can actually do that now. Uh, but ultimately, we do have to sort of think about the system needs to change to be more accommodating, more inclusive, more, uh, you know, uh, you know, friendly to uh, people that are in the margins. And, and, and I think that that takes a lot more thought, a lot more work, a lot more legislative work. That, that, but that's a bigger sort of conversation, and, and we need to have that, but we cannot have that conversation at the expense of not doing anything for people to be able to, you know, buy food now, pay rent at the end of the month. They need to be able to do those things at the same time. So, so it's not an either-or hmm. conversation, but it's more about how do we manage to do both so that, that way we can move ourselves as a society forward, you know, with the people left, you know, left behind for them to be, you know, in- included in that process. You know, one thing I'm hearing from you, Jose, is, and this is rule breaking in my mind. This is one of the ways I've tried to break the rules. A lot of people think it's, well, it's deficit thinking, really. A lot of people think it's a trade-off. You, you can't do this without that. And it is so rule breaking and refreshing for me to hear you remind us it's a both and. You can actually do both of these at once, even though, as George just pointed out, you're kind of at odds with yourself when you're both trying to build bridges and also, in some cases, knock down some some old bridges that could be better better built besides. Jennifer. George, you know, this conversation makes me 
think about the one strategy we didn't talk about, which is how do we actually give fuel to both of these strategies? We talked about the three strategies, but arguably the most important is the fourth, which is the cross-cutting strategy, the golden fool fuel. David, go for it. Can you say that? I love it. Golden fool fuel. I can. I mean, it's a little bit of a tongue twister and part of me wants to say fuel before fool, but no, it's the golden fool fuel. But it really, it's everybody hearing us right now, Jose and Jennifer and George. It's all of you that have enabled us really to build the business that we've built over the last 29 years and hopefully over the next 29 years to build some new bridges and stand up financial freedom for as many people as possible. But yeah, George, it's it's not going to be just us four doing it. Absolutely right. I mean, really, it's, I mean, by the way, it's also gold because if you've seen the branding on our Motley Fool Foundation site, it's that, it's that foolish gold. That's right. So it's really members and listeners like you that are the, the golden beating heart of our organization. And we're looking for opportunities to unleash the members and listeners who want to give back in time, treasure, and talent to help turbocharge all our initiatives. And my watchword for that has been, and will continue to be, pay it forward. I think we hear pay it forward a lot, and that's an important um, concept, something that I I hope is part of everyone's mindset. But especially if you're a Motley Fool member, if you're a listener, uh, in many cases for decades, some of you, thank you so much. We hope you'll think about paying it forward, which means working together with us to really make this world so much more inclusive And I I think the only way we should close this conversation this week, my friends, is one of our taglines at the Motley Fool Foundation. And by the way, foolfoundation.org, I said it earlier, but I'll certainly be mentioning it again and again as we proceed forward. But at foolfoundation.org, you'll come across this phrase, imagine the possibilities. And I kind of led off with it up top, the cold open for the show this week. But I think it would be great if each of us could imagine a possibility out loud as we conclude our conversation and to give you each little time to stall, to come up with one if you didn't already, because I'm springing this on you, I'll just go first with mine. And mine uh, is informed by some of the research that Jennifer and her team, meeting with people like Jose over the last couple of years, hundreds of hours of learnings that we all have locked away in a full database, but it's, it's not, we're not throwing away the key. No, we're sharing it with the world. And here's an example I'm slightly making up the numbers here, Jennifer. Correct me if I'm wrong, but imagine this possibility. If everybody is part of our economic system in the United States of America today, if everybody is included, that unlocks two to three trillion dollars more. So it is in your interest, dear listener, and mine, our self-interest to get as many of our fellow Americans not just coping, but healthy. Because imagine the possibility of our economy adding trillions of dollars as we add everybody who is hearing us right now and everybody else on this fair land, if everybody is included. Imagine that possibility. Who wants to go next? I'm happy to jump in, David. Um, Since we have Jose on the call, um, imagine the possibility of dozens of financial freedom fellows like Jose Mm. in each of our five drivers, each of them leading systems changing, rule breaking ideas, each of them collaborating with other fellows to connect dots in a broken system, each of them 
sharing their stories on forums like this or Motley Fool Live or Foolapalooza or Fool Fest, each of them matching with fools and members, once again, think Golden Fool Fuel, for mentoring and support and new distribution channels, and each of them applying a bridging approach to collaborating across lines of difference. I really believe that together, we can turn obstacles into opportunities, bring financial freedom into the national narrative, and accelerate the field in exciting, rule-breaking, and transformational ways. Wow, that was beautiful, George. And I sure, sure I'm glad I went before you that I don't have to go after that. But I've got two other visionaries, two other rule-breakers. But Jennifer, you're raising your hand. I am. I think about a beautiful statement that George just made and the position of abundance that I think about all the time, right? We know the truths that there is not that abundance out there, but that's the place we want society to get to. So I'm going to go back to my Motley. And I say this all the time to the team and all of our influencers. We talk collectively about this. How do we create a society where fear is reduced? And hope is increased because from that hope will be the opportunities for the inclusion we need for a prosperous society for all. And really, one of the challenges we have now is that we have to want it more than we fear it. And we do want it more than we fear it. And what I've learned over the last two years, speaking to so many listeners, is how much amazing work you're already doing in the world. Mm. You're paying it forward in ways I have been humbled I have been excited. It made me think, okay, we're going to do some things through and with you, the foundation, but we need to give visibility to all the things you're already doing and put some strategy around that. Because when we connect the dots there with all of the amazing work you're already doing and then provide other opportunities for you to engage, I think we really can reduce fear and increase hope. Jose? You know, I love that question and, and I can... Uh, I can tell you that that has been the driver of all of my professional career, imagining what's possible. And what I imagine is, the, you know, when we unleash the human potential of millions of Americans and millions of people that are our neighbors, that are our friends, that are our family members, and unleashing that human potential so that they can be the artists, the doctors, the lawyers, the advocates, the investors, the innovators they have tomorrow. I imagine that world. And, 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 and that, that, is, that is what I want to you know, dedicate myself to, to creating that because we're not there yet. You know, but I think it's possible for us to actually create it. And I think it's about um, seeing you know, that, that, that potential and, and, and seeing how we can actually create those uh, structures now so that we can unleash people's uh, potentials. And and so I, I, I love that, that, that question and thank you for including me in that conversation and for, again, for allowing me to sort of share some of my work and how we're doing it at the Mission NASA Fund. And I truly look forward to engaging all of the fools, <laughs> all of the golden fools or the rule breakers of tomorrow so that that way we can make that reality you know, closer to, to now as possible. Well, we're going to do more than just imagine that possibility. We're going to we're going to make it happen. As so many, three three to go. As you have in your work, really each of us does in our work, and so many people hearing us right now. Yeah, it, you know, it's the greatest joy in life putting something there that wasn't there before. Whether it's a child, 
or a dream, uh, an organization, social entrepreneurs, for-profit entrepreneurs, building true solutions, or creating new possibilities that people didn't previously foresee. Well, let me thank again Jennifer Gennaro Oxley, the Executive Director of the Motley Fool Foundation, George Kaloff, the Program Director at the Motley Fool Foundation, and our partner, friend, and fellow rule breaker, Jose Quinones of the Mission Asset Fund. Jennifer, George, Jose, thank you, and Fool On. Thank you. Fool On. And next week, wow, if there are two certainties in life, death and taxes, well, the month of April has quite enough to say and, and make us do around, around taxes. And indeed, I've thought for some time that it would be groundbreaking. Yes, and, and I think important, and I'm not going to say fun, but I will say rewarding, enriching to do something on the subject which so much of our Western society anyway doesn't want to deal with much, not taxes, no, but death. Well, a remarkable author and a conversation to help you not make the mistake that too many of us are making, dodging the topic, not having certain conversations, not making certain decisions. Many Americans, for instance, die without a will. Now, it doesn't make sense for everyone to do so, but it does make a lot of sense for many who don't often want to confront the reality of our own, yours, mine, hers, his, death. So a tour de force is headed your way. Podcasts just ahead this month on Rule Breaker Investing. And, well, I hope you enjoyed this week's look into the people and minds of the Motley Fool Foundation. I sure did. I always find myself being inspired. You know, I was thinking in conclusion that this week's podcast is probably going to generate an amazing two or four mailbag items for the end of the month mailbag podcast. I just asked my guests to imagine the possibilities, but we're just a few voices and you are many. And so maybe for a mailbag submission this month, our email address, as always, is rbi at fool.com. Just maybe for a mailbag submission this month, you'd like to imagine a possibility along with us. Maybe one that comes out of your own story that you'd like to tell. The best submissions are going to be one page or less. Maybe in a way that you are already paying it full word. We'd love to hear that. And so many of you are in your communities. Maybe a way you're already paying it full word or maybe a possibility you can help us imagine. As always, people on this program may have interest in the stocks they talk about. And The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Learn more about Rule Breaker Investing at rbi.fool.com.